Today's episode brought to you by BossPods.com. Want a podcast like a boss? We've got the inside word on how to set up a podcast that's actually worth something. We've got the industry's best to show you how. BossPods.com. Podcast like a boss. Have you heard any good jokes lately? Uh, I heard any good jokes... Yes. Well, it's not a joke, actually. It's about a man was given the choice of a million dollars, being wise, or good health. And he, he chose being wise, and he was given that, and suddenly he said, hell, I should have chosen the million dollars. <laughs> Welcome to a very special episode of Coming Up Next with Alistair Marks. That's me, I'm Alistair Marks, and you know, when I started this show, it was designed to be, uh, I guess, an exploration or an expose, uh, a conversation with people who are doing what they love, people who've found a way to balance their passion and their bank statement, uh, and then, I guess, an exploration of where that's come from, what it means to them, and uh, a thread throughout this show for me, for those of you who uh, have been tuning in regularly, um, has been about my own creativity and where that spawned, and how that manifested and how it was nurtured, and I guess the question of nature versus nurture has been brought up, and I always always, uh, ask every guest when the first time they can recall doing that thing that they love, that they've done throughout their whole life, was. And so, in the interest of uh, a continued evolution of the show and of a further exploration of my own creativity and the roots of that, I have gone to the source, if you like, um, or one of the sources of my own creativity uh, you, you would have heard me make reference to my grandfather many times throughout this show uh, as, as a writer and as an influence in the early years of my creativity. Well, this week, ladies and gentlemen of the Coming Up Next work, I bring to you a ramble of epic proportions with a man who has travelled the world as a journalist. He is a published author and he also happens to be my grandfather. Coming up next, Stanley Marks. And if this happens to be the first time you're tuning in and you're not really sure what the F I'm talking about, go back through our catalogue. It's available on iTunes under Coming Up Next. Hit the subscribe button. You'll get an episode delivered to your iTunes every week on a Tuesday. And you'll also be able to go through a series of uh, really, really amazing human beings who are out there living life on their own terms. You can also find it on uh, Podbean, comingupnext.podbean.com, on Stitcher, and also www.comingupnext.com.au, as well as the social media stuff, which is facebook.com slash cunpodcast, on the Twitter, at cunpodcast, and Instagram, at cunpodcast. And before I get to the interview, there's one, uh, one little anecdote that my grandfather wanted me to include that we uh, that we actually didn't get to talk about 
when I asked him off air, um, you know, he and my grandmother, as you'll come to learn, have been married for uh, almost 65 years. And, um, and when I asked him what the key to marriage was, he says, there's nothing I won't do for her and there's nothing she won't do for me. And that's how we live, doing nothing for each other. Please enjoy my interview with my grandfather, <laughs> Stanley Marks. A big reason that I started doing this podcast was this kind, this idea of exploring uh, why why people follow creative lives, and I attribute I attribute a lot of my creativity to you and to the kind of things that you would encourage uh, Nick and I to do as kids. You know, writing stories, and you would always be telling us stories and things like that. So it's. Um, it's very cool to actually sit down and talk to you about your creative kind of life and why it was that you became a writer and what your kind of career, I guess, uh, journey and path was. <coughs> Can I ask you questions too? Of course. Right. Why did I become a writer? I can answer that very, very simply. I started writing at a very young, young age. But then one day I was in the uh, public library from where in, in the city where I used to borrow books. And I borrowed a book um, by um, a well-known English writer. And um, um, it was about Fleet Street. It was called Street of Adventure by Sir Philip Gibbs, a well-known British journalist who was a correspondent in the First World War and he wrote this book uh, about Fleet Street and from the minute I read the book I decided I wanted to become a journalist. Um, I was about 14, 15, a bit older and I reread it and um, then by chance I happened to be s borrowing a book in the public library one day, not all that long afterwards but of a while and um, um, I sat near a man I can describe but I have no idea who he was except that he had some connection with the Country Press Association mm. and he said to me um, um, what are you doing and I told him I was doing my leaving certificate at school and uh, he said and what do you want to do when you finish your leaving certificate I said, I'd love to be a journalist. I said, but I haven't a clue how I should go about it. And he said, I'll tell you. Mm. And I said, will you tell me? And he told me, and he said, the best experience is to get onto a country newspaper and um, go on from there. And I said, well, you've told me that, but how do I get onto a country newspaper? He said, well, you write to the editor of country newspapers. But he said, a better idea... No, I said to him, how do I find out who's the editor of, say, paper in Ballarat or wherever? And he said, well, you go to the Country Press Association and they will tell you. And they also might tell you where there are vacancies. And I said, thank you very much. And we chatted about books. And off he went and off I went. And we never met again. We never exchanged names to this day. Um, wow. And um, so I wrote to... Um, I got in touch with the Country Press Association very promptly and they told me 
they sent me a sheet of country newspapers and uh, with the editor's names and I wrote to um, half a dozen <coughs> and uh, most didn't reply but one of them, the Maryborough Advertiser just out of Ballarat, sent me a letter and said, as a matter of fact, we're looking for a cadet journalist and we pay 27 and 6 a week and uh, <laughs> which they said is probably not enough if you're coming from Melbourne for your board, but still, <laughs> we've got a vacancy. And uh, I finished my uh, leaving and um, um, I uh, wrote back or contacted the paper and they said, when can you start? And uh, my father said, well, we'll go up and talk to them and see what they say. And he drove me up to Maryborough, which took about two hours, and I got the job and I promptly started and that's how I started in journalism mm. and went on from there to um, the Geelong Advertiser and from the Geelong Advertiser I went on to various papers and I got a job on the um, Sydney Daily Mirror's Melman office and one day they sent me to court. I must intersperse this by saying... Um, I tried to get on the Melbourne Herald, the evening paper in Melbourne, and uh, they didn't have any vacancies. But anyhow, I went to the court and I did something that probably I shouldn't have done, but for each court case I reported or didn't report, because some of them weren't valuable to a Sydney newspaper as they were to Melbourne, I rang the Melbourne Herald and said, look, I'm in the court in South Melbourne, and there are a lot of little cases going on. I think they might make a few paragraphs each one for the Melman Herald. And the chief of staff then was Reg Leonard, who became a very good friend eventually, and uh, um, and also my boss. And uh, uh, I sent them a dozen stories, maybe more than a dozen stories, and let it go at that. They paid me and... Uh, I didn't tell the Mirror in Sydney and I wrote stories for the Mirror about it but not many and so then I thought I'll follow this up and I rang the Herald, I rang Reg Leonard and I said well I'm the bloke who um, sent you all these stories and he said thank you very much though, very good and I said were they good enough for me to be get a job on the um, Melbourne Herald and uh, he said uh, and I, oh, in the meantime, I'd had experience as well as on the Mirror, on the Ballarat Courier. Mm. And um, he and, and the Mirror Barrow Advertiser in the Ballarat Courier. And Reg Leonard said, why don't you come in and see me? And I went in and see him and I got a job on the Herald. And I was with the Herald and uh, in in the Sydney office too. And then um, and I went from the Herald to um, London and... Uh, then began four years of sort of uh, roaming around from London to Canada to New York and uh, back to Melman. And uh, um, uh, after a while in Melman, I was on uh, the Melman Argus, which closed, but not while I was with it. <coughs> I didn't close it, although I could have probably been blamed. Um, I got a job in charge of publicity for the Australian Broadcasting Commission and I was there for um, six years in charge of all the activities 
for the ABC, especially, especially running the concerts, running, when I say running the publicity, and and um, I used to do talks for Radio Australia, uh, weekly talks, and looked after television, which was in its infancy then, and um, radio, Radio Australia, but the concerts were uh, quite out of the ordinary. You'd meet uh, Isaac Stern and Yehudi Menuhin, Igor Stravinsky, famous orchestras and um, I was really very popular with everybody because they all wanted tickets. Particularly, it seemed to be some sort of achievement if you got a free ticket to a concert. And we used to hold regular press conferences for people like Yehudi Menuhin and uh, Isaac Stern. And um, I used to be able to ask questions which the media followed up and they were very welcome occasions. And of course we had, not of course, but we had um, meals here, at home that is, with people such as Isaac Stern and Yehudi Menuhin and uh, we got to know them and our dinner parties became sort of famous. People wanted to come and have dinner with us and all sorts of things happened at our dinner parties. Um, and jokes flowed and the food flowed and music flowed and quite often I flowed. Um, ask me another question. <laughs> Do you mean you flowed? Well, the liquor flowed. Right. Uh, no, I didn't flow, actually. I flowed with... The conversation flowed. It ranged from, oh, music. You got to know the artist and there were um, three times of... There are three types of people, I always feel when it comes to publicity, those who genuinely want publicity, really want it, those who don't want it at all and genuinely don't want it or don't seek it, and then those who say, we don't want publicity, but are urging you on to get them publicity. Yeah. They're about the three types. Right. And they exist quite heavily in the w world today. Mm. Particularly in the, well, probably in, in any business but I was going to say particularly in the arts and entertainment world. Well it seems to me in many ways though you didn't ask me about it that the world is becoming a world of entertainment and uh, I think in a way this is shown with Donald Trump that an entertainer he's an entertainer he's a showman and I think uh, that's what's happening in our world today the world of entertainment celebrity particularly in entertainment celebrities seems to be taking over in no uncertain manner and everyone and anyone can become a celebrity these days. Mm. It's definitely a big celebrity culture. Is that something that you've seen change a lot in your lifetime, particularly as someone who was, you know, working in uh, in the media? Oh, yes, it's changed. It's got more intense and anyone and everyone can become a celebrity. You've just got to put something out and... Uh, win a competition, uh, a minor competition, you can become a world celebrity. Say something outrageous, you become a celebrity. Say something that's not not true at all, that you've made up, you can make a fortune, then you'll say, I'm sorry. This It, it, it seems quite incredible these days that you can almost do and say anything, but eventually say, I'm terribly sorry, mm. terribly sorry. <laughs> Well, I'm terribly sorry. Um, so to just to backtrack a little bit, listening to 
what you were talking about with your career there's a lot of uh a lot of different things that kind of come to mind but you said that you you knew when you were 14 that you wanted to be become a journalist uh, i'm curious about whether or not i don't know a whole lot about your parents um i'm curious to know were they supportive you mentioned that your dad drove you to um you couldn't have had more supportive father than I did. I think he wanted me to... All my friends were becoming chemists in those days. Right. There seemed to be a, a United Chemist Party of young people. And I was the uh, odd, odd, and I stress word odd, person out. And um, when I was 12, I wrote a play and I couldn't type at that stage and somebody wrote it out in longhand for me. And... Um, uh, uh, the play was put on by the Queensland um, Theatre Company and a well-known journalist who later became a well-known journalist and, and I shared uh, a prize. We both got five pounds each, which was a massive sum in those days. I bought a lot of Cats Lotto tickets and I didn't win, of course. <laughs> Wouldn't be talking to you now here if I'd had. Um, <laughs> No, my parents were very supportive, which um, they came from the east end of London where I was born, a, a Cockney, and um, um, their their parents uh, came from Russia. So we descended on one side from Poland and on the other side from Russia. And uh, um, <coughs> my father had many brothers and sisters and, in fact, they used to sleep in one bed in the east end of London. Uh, not in the east end, but in a house in the east end of London. And when it came, to four of them, I think, slept in the one bed. When it came time to turn or one wanted to go to the toilet, which was outside, they used to say turn and they would turn and one would <laughs> climb over the others or say toilet time and the others would let him pass over. Kind of like in uh, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. Yeah, but there was no chocolate. <laughs> and uh, the um, it was, yeah, that's a good, I hadn't thought of that. Um, but uh, no, they were, as, I, as, he, as I just said, my father drove me to my first interview and um, uh, he was very supportive. And um, when I got on the Herald, I think uh, I interviewed the Irish Prime Minister and it got on the front page it was a very short little story and I think he was beside himself w with um, feelings that uh, I'd achieved this that from the family the background um, I was the uh, first in my family I think to even get although I only went there for three months to the Melbourne Uni um, when I was on the Herald and then I ended up going to Sydney for the uh, Herald, my first correspondent was as a journalist in Sydney for the Herald, from Sydney to Melbourne. Um, yeah, they were very supportive, and uh, except I had an uncle who, uh, Uncle Willie, who um, taught himself to read, well, taught himself to write. He wrote books of poetry, had two books of poetry, but he was the secretary to the London Philharmonic Orchestra. And uh, somewhere in our family, I think, we're supposed to have an atomic scientist, but I've never <laughs> heard any more than that. But right. uh, 
maybe we 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 have that um, maybe we're all toxic. Um, <laughs> that's anyhow. That uh, I hope that answered your question. But very supportive and um, uh, always very very helpful. And um, um, but he uh, he wasn't. He d he left school at fourteen and started working and as most of my family did actually and um, except for the one I mentioned London Philharmonic Orchestra I can't think of anyone who but now now we've got uh, a few famous people in the family a writer in Sydney a well-known writer and um, various people in our family dabble in all sorts of things and then we've got um, Alistair Marks, the well-known, <laughs> well, you've probably met him somewhere along the line, unless you've turned your back on him. Well, that's that's your wisdom. <laughs> His voice. May I charge extra for jokes, by the way. Yeah, yeah. I'm. Uh, I think I can only afford three of them. Well, you've had them. <laughs> <laughs> I guess we'll have to end the interview. Uh, so, what what have you got out of? Uh, our family. I mean, what has it meant to you? It's an interesting question. Um, something that I was going to say just then was about, or I guess wondering what it was that your parents did because I guess from my point of view, um, my brother and I, Nick and I are, uh, I guess we're almost what third generation creatives to an extent to, uh, so far as dad you know played uh in the melbourne symphony orchestra and you and um omar uh both creative people uh and you know really i guess fostering that creativity at a younger age me through writing nick through music through um uh, i mean both of our parents but I guess in particular, it's uh, it comes through directly through you or through Dad in Nick's case. You think there's a gene that we? Well, I'm not sure if there's a gene, but I do wonder the whole nature versus nurture. Well, I haven't told you, but uh, my grandfather Mottle uh, is supposed to have written uh, short stories in Yiddish. Right. Um, and they were supposed to be so hot that they were too hot to be published, um, <laughs> but they were in Yiddish. Right. And we could never track down what happened to them, but we believe the story is that he gave them to us to the synagogue. Now, why you'd give hot stories to the synagogue, mm. I have no idea. But um, he used to have a horse and cart, and um, he he made a bit of money, but we nobody knows what happened to it. Mm. He was always... Um, short of cash and uh, uh, but he had a horse and car and uh, he also had frozen ice business and he had many different businesses that's on my father's side very entrepreneurial very entrepreneurial <laughs> <laughs> yes uh, and on my mother's side um, my grandmother and grandfather met for the first time when they were getting married under the the hooper, as they call it, mm. um, uh, and he turned and ran. He <laughs> ran away. Uh, he was, I think, 1918 or 19. She was 20 or 21. When he first saw her, 
who was shattered. He turned and ran. Had they not have stopped him, I think he would have ran on to Australia. Hmm. Um, but they returned, turned him to the marriage ceremony and they got married and they had many kids and uh, they went from Poland to England, as many did in those days, and uh, later came to Australia. Mm. Um, the, um, he had uh, three sons uh, and a couple of daughters and the sons, they vied for his attention and uh, it was um, almost a comedy farce the way he reacted to them and um, and they reacted to him but it was a constant out maneuvering each other to get his attention mm. and he um, he didn't speak uh, he didn't write English he spoke English very well but he didn't write English he wrote Yiddish and uh, but one of his favorite hobbies my father used to get make a paper called truth it yeah, was yeah. a scurrilous rag. And, um, John Norton. Yeah, my father used to hide it. and Yes, John Norton used to hide it and uh, so that I wouldn't see it. But my grandfather would find it. And he, he would look at all the pictures in there, particularly the page three. I think it was page three in those days. Mm. Like became in London later on. And um, uh, he had an eye, a wink, for a nice-looking lady. Right. And as did my uncle. And um, uh, you could write a book about my family and uh, I've written many stories about them and uh, um, quite a contrast to Eva's family who were sort of upper middle class in Vienna. Mm. Eva's uh, your wife, my Eva's grandmother. my wife, that's what they tell me. <laughs> and uh, your grandmother, yeah. And... Um, uh, when Eva and I got married, um, we um, we went to first spot we went to was Liverpool because I was got a job as a sub editor on the Liverpool Evening Express, and I left her at the station to go and find out where I was staying, and um, um, three hours later I turned back up at the sta up at the station, mm. and I. What I'd done, I'd forgotten all about her. Anyhow, when I turned up with her, good English, but it wasn't sort of up to the liver puddly in English. Yeah, it <laughs> wasn't scouse. She, all she said to me was, um, don't ever do that again, <laughs> which in a way echoed the words of the chief of staff at the Herald when I was working. He was a man named Bill Tipping, well-known journalist, very nice bloke, and... Uh, ran a column, etc., etc. But he was the chief of staff and one day I was covering races mm. at Flemington and um, uh, when I came in on the Monday, he said, sit down and he closed the door and I thought, this is strange. And mm. He said to me, have you got your race book? And I said, yeah, it's in the drawer. He said, go and get it. So I went and got the race book and he said, um, turn to race, blah, 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 whatever it was, and I did. He said, what horse have you got winning the race? And I told him. He said, that horse didn't win the race. And at that stage <coughs> in Melbourne, the bookies used to pay out on the final results of the Herald. Mm. And he said to me exactly the same thing that Eva said when I left her at the station. He said, okay, well, forget it, but don't ever do that again. <laughs> uh, 
So that's an anecdote that I well and truly remember. Something that you still carry with you? Yeah, I carry with me. I don't carry either with me. But but I think one of the things that I learnt early, and I think my father instilled this into me, was sort of, he used to always say, vanity is above all, it's all vanity. Mm. Vanity of vanities. And he used to say, in the end, we're all headed in the same direction. Mm. And it's a bit of advice that Reg Leonard, the uh, man I mentioned before, who was news editor at the Herald and at one stage, um, said to me, don't be nervous when you're interviewing someone. And I said, no, I'll try not to be. He said, just remember one thing. And I said, oh, what's that? He said, remember the bloke sitting in front of you may not always be a bloke but remember the bloke sitting in front of you is just like you he has to go to the toilet like you do and he might be wearing red underpants which could make him a bit of a joke so but just remember his natural things he wants to or has to do are exactly the same as yours and also remember that just like you and me that was him we're all headed in the same direction. Mm. He used to sort of echo my father who... Um, I was rather amazed. I didn't think my father had that many friends, although we had visitors and things. But when he died, the funeral was amazing. And and we used to sit... There's this thing called Shiver where for a week you sit and, and remember the person and uh, acknowledge them. And the house was full every night for a week. And I could, I still can't get over how did so many people know and acknowledge him? And somebody summed it up once by saying, by saying he was, he was a friend to all, and that mm. was about it. And um, he never had much money, and um, uh, he had just enough. Well, he, we never went want, and he sent me to a good school, and um, I don't know how he afforded it, but he did. And um, he bought me a bike once. Uh, or he bought me a bike, and he bought it in the city, and he rode it home. Um, it wasn't much traffic, but he rode it home, and he used to take um, uh, take quite an interest in things I did. Although, when you asked, well, did I get much encouragement or words to that effect? Um, I got encouragement in following my own star. I think that's mm. the way to put it. Uh, when I wanted to go to uh, Country Paper, he drove me. Um, when I wanted to do certain things, he encouraged me. And I also had an uncle, and he introduced me to the theatre and um, uh, all the cultural aspects of, of life. He had friends in the theatre. Um, in fact, I, I once wrote a very short play that uh, when I was 17... The Melbourne, it was a Melbourne Theatre Company, I think. It was just a very small group in the Melbourne Playhouse in town and uh, a man named Bob Clark, I don't know why I suddenly remember that, uh, ran it and he put on my play. It was called Suspect, Mm. Who Did a Murder? And it lasted for half an hour. There were three one-act plays and mine was one of them. But my uncle encouraged that and I think... Between my father's sort of laissez-faire, that's Jewish, uh, (laughs) laissez-faire attitude, uh, 
and my uncle's sort of cultural introductions, uh, I think that's what gave me a good start. Do you remember the first time that you wrote something? And yes, I can remember the very first thing I wrote. Uh, it was a letter to New Idea magazine, which still goes. It was about <coughs> tolerance. I was all of 12 and I got two and sixpence, which would be the equivalent of, oh, now, could it be $10 or oh, more than 10 maybe $12 or $15 in today's money, two and six. And I used to also, the Sun News Pictorial had a page for children every day run by, oh, I can't think of her name, Cornelia, Cornelia. First time in years. And uh, I, you didn't get paid for that, but I used to contribute little sayings and things. Mm. And um, um, I don't know where they came from because I often say to even now, where, where do I get these ideas from? Um, um, when I was in Canada, I had this idea we should have an Olympic arts festival. Um, and the article's there, actually. Um, and it sort of caught on. And uh, then I said, we should have a British Commonwealth Art Festival. And that caught on. And I wrote articles about it and letters. I got a stack of letters um, and um, uh, quite around the world. But anyhow, it ended up um, somebody took up the idea and anyhow, they got knighted for it. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm not saying they shouldn't have got knighted or... They they actually did it, and but uh, the idea came from um, from me, and um, it's. Um, and I interviewed one of the one of the first people I, I interviewed was Sir Alec Guinness, uh, and uh, that's why I got this encouragement. That, that You're Olymp right. Um, why not an Olympic art festival? Ask Stan Marks, well-known Melbourne journalist. But it started earlier than that it, with the Olympic Arts Festival in Canada. Mm. Um, but then also in the New York Times, I had an article about should be a youth council. At the, that's not the New York Times article. That's an article in the Melbourne Sun saying I'd had this article in the uh, New York Times mm. and uh, there was interest in it around the world and... There is now a youth council at the United Nations. Mm. I don't think anyone would ever think, know who Stan Marks is at the United <laughs> Nations. I think um, it's a bit like um, when something happens, people say, oh, who the hell is he? It's um, Yeah. So anyhow, that's uh, a broad spectrum of um, uh, people. I've interviewed all sorts of people in all sorts of places, uh, people often say, who's the most interesting person you've met? God, I'm rambling, aren't I? Um, who's the mo I think one of them is um, Isaac Stern. And uh, Oh, there was a, a ship in Montreal Harbour, um, an Israeli ship, and a captain was a cargo ship. The captain had threatened to blow up his ship in the harbour unless some action was taken. I can't quite remember. I've got the clipping in a book of clippings in the other room. Mm. Um, anyhow, I went aboard and talked him out of doing it. Oh, wow. And I, um, How did you do that? I, I have no idea. <laughs> I just sat and talked just to said, him. Just said, don't do it. I, I sat and talked to him. It was a front-page story. And um, 
I know. We both sat there with him about to blow up, not about to, saying he would blow up the ship. I don't think he really intended to. But for all intents and purposes, he um, he was going to blow up the ship mm. in the harbour and the uh, news editor sent me down and said, have a chat to him and see what he's going to do. And the <laughs> last words as I left the office was, don't get blown up. <laughs> and, uh, uh, I didn't. Uh Maybe I did. Um, <laughs> well, if you had, someone may have said to you for the third time, don't ever do that again. Don't ever do That's very clever. <laughs> Goodness gracious. At least we've got one clever member in the family. <laughs> um, but uh, it, it, it's interesting. You get an insight into people by interviewing them. The, um, as I said, a lot of people don't, initially want to be interviewed but uh, they want you to talk them into it and mm. uh, um, this is getting back to today <coughs> this this I think when you interview somebody you interview them in a different way um, because you it's it's um, when I started off you, the, the facts started at the first paragraph and uh, worked their way down and uh, uh, you're always told to put the main facts at the start mm. because if it was going to be cut they would cut from the bottom up but now I think the first paragraph in most, not most in many stories are about the celebrity and uh, being a celebrity is um, not quite sure what it means but being a celebrity gets you a headline every time it's the world of celebrity and uh, instant actions which is frightening gratification yeah, well, it's frightening that something that can happen in a remote part of the world and within minutes you, the people are talking about total Armageddon or something. Mm. Uh, that we're living on a knife edge. And, I, and, and when, when you look at all the armaments, you wonder, or I do, uh, where the heck are we heading with all these armaments? And you get threats of... Uh, year, many, many years ago... There were threats that uh, that uh, terrorists of one sort or another, it didn't matter where from, or it didn't matter, but who they were, could put uh, drugs into water supplies. Mm. That was a great fear at one stage. And I often wonder these days, could it happen? And what happens if and when terrorists, whoever they are, get hold of uh, atomic weapons or missiles or um, it could happen. Well, it probably will in the future. And then another thing is um, uh, we talk of uh, other planets and aliens. I often, I've written about have aliens spotted this world, studied it and passed over it because it's <laughs> too difficult to control this world. When you think of the terrorism, the hatreds, the wars, and it's as though they don't exist and all these refugees and... Um, we don't. We seem to just ignore it. Well, not quite ignore it, but the humanitarian aspects don't seem to come. And it's all a matter of playing politics. Use anything you can, and um, do whatever it takes to achieve something. Mm. Uh, whether it's a win a war, or politics generally, or whatever. But anyhow, it, it, it's um, you wonder where the world's headed, and. Uh, uh, 
we take so much for granted, including ourselves. But um, when I don't, I think we should take nothing and no one for granted. In fact, that's that's a mantra: take nothing and no one for granted. But let's we. I've got very deep there, and um, uh, let's. We tend to tend to sometimes get pretty deep in these interviews. Tempers. No, it, uh, we tend to. Oh yes, yes, yes. Well, lately I've been writing these faith articles in the age and in papers interstate and um, developing a bit of a philosophy. It's a self-philosophy, whether it's good, bad or indifferent. Um, and sort of looking at the world and where we're heading, uh, what direction we're heading in. And um, um, anyone's views matter. And, and also the way sport has taken over um, and, and the word hero worries me. Uh, these days, almost you can become a hero for doing. It's it's the word hero has been, in my think, demeaned in many ways. Mm. Um, who becomes a hero? You can become a hero by accident. Uh, uh, it's th- it's the same as the word tolerance. People say I'm tolerant. I just I agree with so and so, or I'm tolerant. Tolerant really means sitting on the fence, doesn't it? You don't have to give a view. If if I agree with you or don't disagree, it means I'm fence-sitting. And that seems to be a big feature of these days. We, we're we all very tolerant. We all can do something and say we're sorry. We murder someone and in court say, gee, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to do that. Um, it's It's worrying. But then when I read what thousands of years ago... Uh, what Aristotle or Plato said about the youth of those days, you could be saying it about the youth of these days right. in many ways. that um, I was reading recently what, what was it? One of the Greek philosophers was commenting on how youth was a worry. Well, uh, have we changed? And people talk about times this century is worse than any other century so far. Ha- is it? Last century, the 20th century, we had the Holocaust we had Cambodia, we had Vietnam, we had two world wars. Uh, are we any worse in, in I think the, the worst thing is that two things, that we can destroy the world quicker in an instant uh, today and um, we can do that and also communications. The fact that, uh, as I said before, in an instant, the world uh, hears of what happened in Melbourne can go around the world or in any part of the world. And uh, before it's corrected, some great harm can be done. Um, so that's the worry. But let's get off this topic. <laughs> One of my main concerns, the Mel- not a concern, is to try and write a good song for Melbourne. Mm. A bloke named Andy Vance and I have been working on it. We've been working on it actually on and off for a long time. We began again last year, and uh, he's written some very good music. And I'm, I'm right. I've written some lyrics, but we've got to got to work the lyrics together. And um, I think we're finally getting to a stage where we might have a tune for Melbourne, because I think Melbourne needs a, a good song. But then again, about a year ago, I wrote in the Jerusalem Post, and there was a little bit in the Australian newspaper uh, urging an international anthem, not um, an anthem uh, for understanding and fostering 
perhaps peace. I've been labelled in the Jerusalem Post as, um, uh, well, almost an idiot. But then I've had uh, had people, lots of um, well-known musicians, particularly overseas, not so much in Australia, um, but uh, overseas urging me to pursue the idea and some of the lyrics I've nutted out and... Um, um, I think we should have we should we could have an international anthem led by youth. It might help. It might not help. But in the world we live in today, anything could help, couldn't it? Or could it? Who knows? Mm. How um, something that you've said consistently through uh, telling me your story is about um, writing from your own experiences, and it seems like through the plays that you've written and the articles that you write and also um, some of the books that you've written, you're always writing from your own experiences and from your own life. <coughs> I wrote the first book with a Holocaust theme set in Melman and believed to be the first in Australia. It was published in London and it happened by accident. Um, we, we were having a dinner party, or well, dinner party, a few friends, um, when we lived in a suburb called Clorinda out of Melbourne which people in those days hadn't heard of but they seem to have heard of now it's near Clayton and um, so at the last minute somebody rang and said can we bring somebody here from America a music producer the man who rang was a music producer he actually produced a, a, a disc of a record I wrote called Animal Olympics and later I'm, I wrote a book about it but anyhow he said can I bring a friend and we said sure and he came and we talked and we drank wine and um, this man we said to him Eva said to him uh, where were you during the war because he had a pronounced accent he, he was living in Chicago at the time and uh, Eva said where were you during the war and he said oh I was in the German army on the Russian front after questioning, Eva said, you weren't on the Russian front, where were you? And he said, I was a guard in a concentration camp. And the whole evening collapsed because Eva was a prisoner in the Gulag for six years and um, she had to leave Vienna because of the uh, Nazis and she knew what guards were like, particularly in the Gulag. One of the guards, guards she described to me as being terrible and I often said to her if you met this guard in Melbourne what would you do she'd probably said I'd spit in his eye she said I'd probably kill him anyhow the next day the the dinner dinner that night ended suddenly and mm. Eva said you got to get him out of the house I can't I don't want him in the house and he he drank so much he lifted his arm and showed us the sign of the the, the Nazis had a sign a tattoo under their arm Right. Uh, showing where, who he really was, so there was no doubt. Uh, so the next morning, I said to Eva, "What would you have done if he'd have been the guard in the camp you told me about?" And uh, she said, "I'd have probably killed him." I know. I said, um, "And you could have uh, been charged with mm. manslaughter or murder." And she said, "I couldn't have cared less." So I started ruminating, and I used to. I was at the ABC at the time and the Australian Broadcasting Commission, which is now a corporation. And uh, as I walked across the park uh, in South Yarra, I used to get the train and walk across the park. 
I was thinking about this and I said, well, what would have happened if Eva would have killed him uh, or anyone would have killed the guard and been charged with murder? And I wrote the book and that became God Gave You One Face, which is a quote from Hamlet. Mm. God gave you one face and you gave yourself another. And um, uh, I had in the book that the God gave, if there is a God, God gave um, the guard a face and he gave himself another. And it was published in London and Sydney. It was optioned for a film. <laughs> but that's another story, the film world. Won't go into that. And um, 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 that's, that was the first book uh, with a Holocaust theme in Melbourne. And Eva and I worked at the Holocaust Centre as volunteers for 17 years. I w was editor of the widely read magazine, Centre News, and um, interviewing all sorts of people for it. Um, um, I got an interview um, by email of Angela Merkel, the uh, Chance German Chancellor, and got a good interview with her and uh, interviewed Ellie Wiesel, the Nobel Prize winner and author in his New York apartment overlooking Central Park. And um, um, his main theme was that um, he was a witness to history. And uh, uh, he also asked, where was God during the Holocaust? And it's a topic I keep asking people. I've never got a satisfactory answer, except some people say that... Uh, it happened so that Israel would become Israel, and uh, I don't know that I can buy that. Um, mm. Bad way of putting it, but still, um, uh, yes, and um, that uh, that came out of uh, the uh, dinner that we had that night, which was <laughs> quite an experience in a Melbourne suburb. I've given talks about it and written about it, and. Uh, um, it's in paperback and um, the hardback, uh, but of course it's been outpaced now by other books. And uh, but one of the nicest things I've ever been involved in is writing a daily cartoon strip for the Melbourne Herald and papers in New Zealand uh, called Ms. It, uh, Aubrey Collette, the uh, since died was a well-known cartoonist, had to leave Singapore um, because um, he would have been imprisoned for what he drew, but he's, he was a page-four cartoonist for the uh, Herald, and we used to do this strip, Miz, about a mother, father, a, a son and daughter, and their cat, and um, uh, it appeared every day for over four years in these papers in Australia and New Zealand, and some funny experiences. Um, one of the one of the most enduring was, if that's the right word, when we used to go out to dinner parties. Gee, it sounds as though we used to have a lot of dinner parties, <laughs> doesn't it? Um, um, you did, didn't uh, you? I think we did actually. Yeah. Um, uh, people would say, uh, men there with their wives and mistresses, or both actually, they used to say to me. Uh, to uh, to their wives or mistresses, or both, uh, don't sit near Stan. He's in favour of women. Well, the cartoon strip was in favour of men, women, children, and animals. Mm. And uh, we used to get quite a lot of it's a light of tension uh, in Miz. And um, um, 
the Chicago Daily News thought of printing it in America, but it, it didn't happen. It's like a, quite a few things that never, ever happened. Mm. Um, like a filming. The world of films, particularly of a book, it, it's quite astonishing. You know, you write scripts and uh, you work with people and um, it just didn't happen. So there we are. Mm. When And when did you start writing books for children and what was the thinking behind that? Because it's quite a shift from writing... Oh, our, uh, Animal Olympics was the first. Uh, we were at the zoo, your father and you, your grandmother and I and Lee, Peter's sister who died, uh, we were at the zoo. And I, the, they, the others had walked on and I was standing there and I was talking, in quotes, talking to the monkeys. And when I caught up with the others, they said, where were you? And I said, well, <laughs> I was talking to the monkeys. <laughs> and I think it was Eva or, or it might have been Peter said to me, and what did, did the monkeys tell you? Yeah. And I said, well, they were all very busy getting pre- ready for the Animal Olympics. And that's exactly. And, and uh, when we got home, I said, I went on about uh, the animal. Because one of them said to me, what... What, what did they tell you about the Olympics? And I said, well, the, there's a little worry about cheating and the, that the giraffe puts its head down and wins by uh, a long neck mm. and gets disqualified. Yeah. And Eva said, why don't you write all that down? And I did. And uh, it became the book Animal Olympics, uh, which, which led... It was doing well as a hardback and then it became a paperback. And one night um, I went to, and now here we go again, to a dinner <laughs> where Clifton Pugh, the well-known artist, was, but also um, um, a well-known English adventurer was there to, um, to dinner and he had on his lap uh, a uh, koala. He was holding it through dinner and uh, Cliff... And somebody mentioned Animal Olympics to him and Cliff Pugh said, well, haven't you heard what happened today, Stan? And I said, what happened today? And he said, well, Animal Olympics has been impounded in the paperback. And I said, what do you mean impounded? What are you? What the hell are you talking about? Mm. And he said to me, um, well, uh, it's the, the uh, people who um, published it are being questions about pornographic literature and I said you mean Animal Olympics he said no 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 other literature Uh, anyhow something had happened and uh, to this day I'm not quite sure what and they impounded Animal Olympics and it took about four years for it to be sold and a decreased price but it was sold eventually and Mm. uh, um, uh, that was the paperback the hardback sold quite well. But the animals do have their Olympics. People don't believe me when I tell <laughs> them. And, uh, there are disqualifications. One year, <laughs> it's very strange, the kangaroo leaped so high, he leaped out of the stadium and he caused a traffic congestion right outside the stadium door. In fact, I think he got arrested. Uh, happy kangaroo, hoppy kangaroo. Yeah. You don't believe me, no <laughs> doubt, by the look on your face. Um, 
but it did happen. Mm. Yeah, I remember uh, you coming to school when I was in primary school and talking about Animal Olympics and talking about writing and you would have little writing competitions where we'd all write short stories. And um, I always remember feeling very proud uh, as as a kid uh, at King David School, I think. Ah, yes. Yeah, I did some, yeah, I was on their PR committee for a while. Your father was president. Yeah. Yeah. And I, yeah, I think I was on the PR committee for a while. Um, I seem to get roped into PR activities quite a bit, all sorts of schools and um, organisations and, um, mm. um, yeah. Um, how, uh, how important was it for you to kind of, I mean, did you set out, say, for example, with me and, and at schools, Do you did you set out to kind of foster a creativity or was it just that was a way to relate um, to grandchildren or a bit to of children everything in I think and, and encouragement to encourage you to um, to be creative I think uh, there's not too much in the world that's better than being creative I quite often say to evil where the heck did I get that idea from or mm. where do ideas come from I mean, I'm not comparing in any way, but where did Mozart get the idea to do what he did? And uh, where do some of the great writers, the, whoever wrote Shakespeare, whether there was a Shakespeare or not, where did all these ideas come from? Mm. Uh, you know, the um, you could go through life just reading Shakespeare and being able to find something for every occasion. Um, where did I get the idea? To title a book from Hamlet, mm. uh, you know why? Why that sentence? Um, um, what made me remember it? Uh, what uh, are, are we all? I've just written an article about music, and are are we all wired for music for sound? Is there something in us that uh, that leans us towards music? That um, no matter what sort of music, whether it's uh, um, liturgic or or jazz or hip hop or tribal drums or Beethoven, where do where do we get this instinct from? Mm. And uh, and I I think maybe we're wired for music. I don't know. And um, and are we wired for religion? What? How did all different countries have different sort of religious aspects? How does what does it all mean? And uh, uh, is there an answer? Uh, are we meant to find an answer? Uh, 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 and and do we take? Do are we foolish enough to believe so many things are impossible and um, that there aren't aliens out there? And when we talk about aliens, what do we mean? What sort of people? Um, what sort of microbes? And uh, uh, so many unanswered questions and. Um, now we hear, we hear this week of nine extra planets are mm. being discovered. What what does it really mean? And what temerity for us to think we're just the only civilised, if that's the right word, when you look <laughs> at what's going on in the world, yeah. civilised planet. I'm getting all furious about nothing. But, you know, you do worry or, or concern and question mm. 
I think that's part um part of the of Judaism. Is I was talking to a rabbi the other day, and I said I question too much. He said no. One of the bases of Judaism is your question, curiosity. You que- yeah, you question to find answers and uh, keep questioning and don't stop questioning. And I think that's it. And I think the people, particularly our politicians, who try and stop us questioning. Um, well, I wonder. I wonder. There should. Be, I. I feel there should be tests before people become leaders. They, uh, um, or maybe, maybe not. But um, what, how can you suddenly become a min- minister for something without a background in that particular field? Mm. You know, a minister for uh, um, the solar system without being aware of what's having studied it. I think that's one of. Is it a failing or not, or or are we better having people from all walks of life who have not studied or know little about it? I don't know. Is there an answer? Back to the question: Should we have answers? Um, do you do you identify strongly as a Jewish uh, person, or is it more of a cultural? Yeah, I think it's more of a cultural <coughs> thing. Uh, uh, I acknowledge I am, but. Uh, I have questions, and uh, uh, I, I don't, for an instant. Uh, well, I was brought up Orthodox, mm. changed to the temple when my father died. We we changed, and uh, I wrote a piece about what it means to be a member of the temple, including you can get to kiss the rabbi. You see, <laughs> <laughs> I actually put that in the article, yeah. and. Uh, the lady rabbi. Right. Yes. Um, um, you could probably kiss the male rabbi if you wanted to. Well, that's it. Depends on the male rabbi. Yep. Uh, <laughs> um, so anyhow, we've ram- I've rambled on. I don't know whether I've told you much. Um, what What do you? Uh, I guess on that kind of note, I'm very, I'm curious, and perhaps uh, uh, it's it's the Jewish part of me that has this curiosity uh, about different people's definitions of what God is to them. And you kind of touched on before um, people that you'd interviewed and having their ideas about where God was during the Holocaust and um, different definitions, I'm sure, of what that means. Is that something that you believe in or do you have? When it comes to a belief in God, I think you can say I'm an agnostic. Mm. I neither believed or disbelieved. I don't know. And for anyone to say they know, I I find that, well, extraordinary. We don't know. No one knows. Uh, They'll tell you they do. You can have, uh, sometimes I wish I had this um, spiritual value that many people I know have and um, and I go around singing, if I were a rich man, I could pray. It sticks out. I could have a seat in the, what is it, the Western Wall. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I think about that. I think, now, what does that really mean? What does it mean to people to have a seat in the Western Wall? What what are they thinking? Who are they praying to? And um, could there be something? There could be something spiritual, Um I don't. Who am I? Who am I of seven billion people to deny that there is something or that there isn't? Um, uh, it would be the height's audacity, I think, 
in in my feeling that um, I should dictate to others what they should believe or not believe. Mm. Um, it's very personal, and uh, um, if you're not harming anyone else, believe whatever you like. Um, believe that that table in front of us is, uh, is something spiritual. Uh, I was going to say that this is my uh, spiritual table. Yeah, well, it it's got. Uh, the, see the Aborigines. Uh, I. I've written about Aborigines. In fact, I've written quite a bit about uh, the first Aboriginal president, yeah. uh, be it a male of Australia mm. uh, and prime minister. In fact, one of those things is the first uh, Aboriginal prime minister taking one of these plays, making his maiden written. speech. One of the plays uh, yeah, that you've written. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, um, I've just written a stand ground about it. Uh, I might be. Silly me writing letters, but there we go. Um, no, uh, the Aborigines I find quite fascinating. Um, uh, I've spent some time in Central Australia with them, and um, um, I think the way we've treated them over the years is appalling, and um, absolutely appalling. Um, and um, no, I um, I think we having a um, Aboriginal. Prime Minister could he or she uh, could be a good thing, um, mm. and um, I, I was the first actually uh, to um, write about the um, uh, in 1938. The Aborigines were one of the few around the world to protest after Kristallnacht when the uh, Nazis set fire to Jewish synagogues, etc. Mm. And one day at the Holocaust Centre, I was looking in the archives for something, and there were two little clippings from the Age and Argus of 1938 explaining that uh, the Melbourne Aboriginal <coughs> people were um, uh, protesting, had protested and sent a letter to the German embassy to send on to Hitler about the treatment of Jews. Mm. And they one of the, were one of the first... Well, they were the first in Australia, one of the first around the world, we believe, um, uh, to do this. And um, I wrote quite a bit about it, and uh, um, that's how it all started to be known, uh, fully known, uh, about what the Aborigines did. And uh, I think uh, we've got a very sorry past with the Aborigines. And uh, um, I once spent a fascinating whole day with a man named Chief Poking Fire, just on um, on a reservation outside of Montreal. Mm. And um, um, he uh, we talked about Aboriginal problems around the world. And um, um, uh, he, about the, the Canadian Indians and the American Indians, and I believe something happened recently. There's growing number of suicides among the Canadian Indians in a certain part. But at that stage, Chief Poking Fire, he gave me a, ca a card. I've got it in there up on my wall there from his tent to my tent across the sea. Mm. In other words, from Montreal to Melbourne across the sea. Wow. <laughs> and he drew, um, he drew his tent and my tent and the sea in between. And... Um, um, that's that's in there, um, and I found that fascinating. And I I find different people 
tribes in the highlands of New Guinea. I, we, I did a book on children of New Guinea and children of Bali and the different ceremonies and the sort of spiritual world, how they all have some sort of spiritual following. What does it really mean? Uh, are we like wired for music? Are we wired uh, for spiritual things mm. too? Um, um, and have uh, you have you drawn any conclusions no, from any of that? No, I, I no. Um, what do you think? Uh, do you think there is a meaning to why we have life and why life is here? Actually, I just read a strange book about. Uh, um, it's got humour in it and. But one of the chapters is, is there a meaning to life? Mm. Um, and uh, um, I don't know that there is. I think when you've been, you've been. When you're gone, you're gone. And um, uh, that's it. That's it. Um, enjoy it while you can, while you're mm. here, and uh, savour the day. Um, um, um Leaving legacies, good, bad, or indifferent, uh, um, and and also I think I wrote in the Age earlier this year a faith article on walking in someone else's shoes. Mm. I think um, um, I do it. It's a terrible thing. Uh, judge other people without having a clue who or what they are, and um, you know the the police get. I used to be. In neighbourhood watch. Mm. That's why I, one of the reasons I got an Australia Day award was including our neighbourhood. But the police used to come and talk to us, and I used to wonder, having to make, and I wrote this in the article, having to make a decision, a split second decision, whether to shoot someone or not, walking in their shoes. What about a mother who's got kids who have got, uh, well, in our own family, uh, who have got kids who are um, um, need attention, or, or um, um, how do they cope? How do single mothers cope? Mm. And all sorts of people, people who are in Cambodia, people who are in the Holocaust. Um, you know, it's um, it. I don't. I can't understand them. I can't walk in their shoes, uh, and yet we criticise and. Um, uh, try and walk in other people's shoes. I think one of the consistent uh, opinions, and I think it's kind of what you're saying about being more compassionate uh, towards people and, and less judgmental, is this idea of, um, you know, really taking love as a very high value uh, and something that the world, I don't know if it needs more of, but it needs, uh, perhaps that's the that's what we're here for to really love one another or um you know to kind of unsha uh what am i trying to say i guess to undo these kind of layers of uh armoring and conflict and and um drama and to find a place where everyone can exist harmoniously but love can also cause problems mm uh you can kill for love um, you can hate for love, which is <laughs> ironic. Um, uh, when we say we love, what do we mean? Do we, do we mean that we selfishly feel that this person should love us because we love them? Um, 
people who um, um, have lovers and because they don't love them back, they kill them. Is that is that love? Uh, um, when not when you when you, when you look at the million refugees in Europe at the moment, uh, and and you, you it's humanity gone mad, but. Um, where is the love? Um, um, how, ca- how can we exist in a world where a million people, not to say a million in other areas, two million, ten million, are refugees, um, not knowing from one meal to the next whether they'll get a next meal, uh, playing politics, turning back boats, um, you know, and 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 glowing at it, glowing at it, patting themselves on the back. Um, how can we do this mm. in the world we live in? Um, who do we think we are? Uh, to corner a TV program, um, who, who, you know, um, who do we think we are? Uh, what gives me the right to tell you what to do? Uh, of course, there must be standards and values and things. Otherwise, the world would be m- more chaotic than it is. Mm. And in many ways, where look at what we've achieved in various ways. It's it's uh, quite amazing. And um, aliens might also look at that side of us. But uh, when you sit down and wonder, it's and 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 how how privileged we are in many ways. In Australia and in parts of the world, um, um, which we take for granted. Before we, uh, before we do finish up, um, one very important part of your life is uh, is your wife, my grandmother, and you have been married for almost sixty five years. Mm. What was uh, what was it like the first time that you met Eva? First day she arrived in Australia. Mm. Uh, I was in her father's restaurant a few months before, weeks before, and her father said to me, my daughter's coming here. They were divorced, her parents, and her mother was with her in the camp. Her father was in Australia. He came to Australia on the famous ship, the Danira. Um, And he said to me, my daughter's coming here. You were on the Herald, you know a lot of people. Could you introduce my daughter? And I said, yeah, okay, I'll try. And he said, by the way, I've got a photo of her. And he showed me the photo and I looked at her and I said, well, look, don't worry about introducing her, I'll, I'll look after her. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and that's how it started. I wrote to her on the boat. She got my letter in Perth and... Um, uh, the first day she arrived, I met her, mm. and it sort of got out of hand from then on. And uh, do you remember the first date that you went on? Yes, the first date. I think I I was reviewing a play at the Princess Theatre. It was called "See How They Run," I think, <coughs> with a man named Mollison, Hank Mollison from Britain, and uh, she came with me. And I remember too because she wanted to go to the toilet and she didn't read the signs and walked into the men's toilet right. and came <laughs> running out said, oh, dear. <laughs> and uh, it sort of uh, 
went on from then, you see. And uh, mm. and I remember you telling me the story of how you um, how you proposed to her. Yes, I proposed just before just before I went to England. But then, when she got to England, where we got married. We went to St Paul's Cathedral and they have a whispering gallery Mm. and she stood on one end virtually facing me across the gallery and um, I stood at the other end and I asked her a question which went round the left side of the room. She answered the question and the answer came back round the right side of the room Mm. and the answer was a three-letter word and... um, that was the uh, second proposal, but it uh, that was it in mm. St Paul's Cathedral. A good Yiddish boy in <laughs> St Paul's Cathedral, <laughs> and the spirits of all the people buried in St Paul's Cathedral, mm. uh, uh, whatever. Um, <laughs> and uh, that's it, and uh, it went on from there. Um, yeah. After 65 years and, you know, a lot of um, trials and tribulations, I'm sure, what are some of the, I guess, key things that you uh, that you know about making a relationship last? I think... Uh, I, d- I, d- uh, I said tolerance is a strange word. And it's easy to be tolerant, but I suppose Eva's tolerance <laughs> of one way and another of many, uh, yeah, I suppose that, uh, her understanding and her, her uh, wrote a book about the gulags and he ended up by saying, I survived today and tomorrow is another day. And sort of, I hope I survive tomorrow. Mm. And Eva's philosophy of life seems to be, I survive the camps, I can survive anything. Her philosophy actually is when you've been in the gutter, you can't go any lower. Mm. You've got to either stay in the gutter or come out. Mm. And I think uh, that's how she's looked at life. And uh, she's uh, she was a curator, assistant curator at the Holocaust Centre and... She was also um, treasurer of the secretary of the Friends of the Holocaust Centre, and uh, she was an art teacher, and she made arts and uh, uh, creative arts, and um, she used to give talks galore um, all over the place. Um, very well known for her talks, and um, she o- often ended up with. That saying, when you're in the gutter, you can't go any lower. Mm. Um, and uh, um, that's about it. And she's, it's the spirit that has <laughs> got her through the last few years that uh, haven't been easy. But um, uh, that's where we are. And um, mm. she's gone on from the death of a daughter and... Uh, uh, the ills of a grandchild and uh, um, uh, the annoyances of her grandchildren, <laughs> particularly the boys. <laughs> oh, terrible. Dan, tell you, we can need another two hours. And, um, three <laughs> Make hours it a more, more of an expose. Oh, you should. If ever you meet them, no, don't tell them I've said this, but, you know. Yeah. 
<laughs> um, I hear the uh, the eldest grandson's a bit of a piece of work. Depends what you mean by a piece of work. <laughs> there are good pieces. Of work. That table's a good piece of work. And it's a very spiritual piece of work. It is. It's, ca- it's emanating. Yeah. Um, but um, there we are. And I think like the batteries you put in, I need to charge my input of food. Yeah, I, I'm certainly with you on that. And um, uh, there's one question that I end the interview with, and it's actually probably, now that I think about it, directly related to something that you've always taught me which is about which i've quoted on this show before which is about obeying the 11th commandment thou shalt laugh especially at thyself the question is what makes you silly what makes me silly what do you mean silly in actions or silly about the world it's both both any oh what makes me silly i don't know ideas i guess silly silly ideas um uh, that bit you read from the Australian, mm. they wrote, some people regard me as a nut, yeah. as silly. Some people regard me as silly with, with these ideas, that idea I had about world communications. Um, um, and what do I regard as... Uh, that's silliness in, in me that people think, and silly in some of the articles I write, um, silly in some of the things I've just told you yeah. about walking in other people's shoes. Um, uh, although that article in, in the Sunday Age, etc., got a lot of good comment. Um, but being silly, oh, I don't know, um, playing the fool. Playing with kids. Oh, I think that's with little kids uh, in, in New Guinea and uh, uh, in the outback and uh, in China. In China, uh, I've got a photo of me conducting um, when I was in Kwandong province, mm. the, um, the, the bus I was on happened to stop outside a kindergarten or a uh, primary school. And I said to the guide, what's that? Well, not the guide, the driver, what's that? And he said, it's primary school. And I said, could I go in? He said, I don't know. Mm. I said, well, I'll try. And I pushed the gates and I went in and somebody there spoke English and I said... I'm from Australia, and uh, would it be possible to um, sit in on a class? And I said, my Chinese is non-existent. And uh, she was. She said yes, so I went in, and the teacher welcomed me. And um, uh, I said to the teacher, do they know any songs, Australian songs? And she said, yes, they know Click Go the Shears. <laughs> and I said, could I conduct them? And that's in the photo. Yeah. And I said, and she said, yes. So I went and they sang in English and Chinese, Click Go the Shears. Wow. And then they sang other songs. But I, and also I've got a photo in other countries, in Fiji. I did the same. We sang songs, we made up songs. Mm. And I think I was. people would say, you're being silly in particularly in China, singing various songs and making up words. Yeah. And, um, um, I remember you doing that for us as kids. Yeah, well, we had kids here last week, uh, uh, two women who came brought t- two kids and I played hide-and-seek with them, mm. uh, pretended. Well, this has been um, really uh, amazing for me. I'm, I'm really so grateful to you for... Uh, for sitting down and talking with me and also for nurturing 
this um, this creativity from a young age, and always being encouraging of uh, of our creative pursuits. Thank you so much, Opa. It's a pleasure. I just send Art send me the fee in the mail. Thank in shekels.